0: Greetings, raised community. Brent coming in live with today's guest, Eloise Dunn who is both an author and the Vice Chancellor for Advancement and alumni at the University of Houston. Welcome, Eloise.
1: Thank you very much. I'm pleased to be here.
0: Well, I am pleased to meet you in this setting. We have uh, been fortunate to be able to connect uh, several times over the years, but Uh, in preparing for this podcast. I've already learned so many new things about you that I should have already known if I had done better research, but the past is the past. We're here today. I love finding out from our guests, from leaders in the advancement sector like yourself, uh, a little bit more about your own college journey. So take me back to junior year of high school. Who was that, Eloise? What was she into? And what led you to Carleton College up in Northfield, Minnesota.
1: Well, you do know a lot, don't you? Uh, so I was, I'm a Midwesterner by birth and have found my way to the South. But back then, uh, I thought that my career choice was going to be to become a doctor. My aunt was a doctor and I thought, well, that looks like a, a great career, serious and you know, full of opportunities to help people. And along the way, I decided that is not for me at at Carleton. Taking a few of the classes, but
0: what do you the, even? I mean, where where were you in Minnesota or where in the Midwest were you?
1: I um, I grew up in Madison, and then we moved to Urbana, Illinois. So both Big Ten institutions. So you can see a theme that of uh, big public research universities that, that comes out in, in all my background. My father was I mean, a Wisconsin, professor
0: Wisconsin, Illinois, and Minnesota. That's a real uh, real nice. That's
1: for the Midwest. Uh,
0: yeah, exactly. I'm from Iowa, which you clearly avoided, but that's okay. Uh, so, so when did Carlton get on your radar? Uh, a great liberal arts school. Some people listening know all about it. Others are saying, "What's that?" So, yeah, tell me more about Carlton.
1: Well, I think that uh, I well, I grew up understanding that a liberal arts education had great value, in that it, it does teach you to think critically, and it, it teaches you about a variety of subjects as opposed to being narrow, more narrow, perhaps um, directed skills training. So Carlton was always a name that I knew. Um, and so it, it was a pretty easy decision, got in early decision. And so I thought oh, that's where I'm going. The winners were horrible and even worse than in Wisconsin, Iowa, or or Illinois. And so I ultimately decided that um, that I wanted to test out going to Vanderbilt, which is a, another, a family school. And so I went down there for a semester and ended up staying and graduating from there, uh, majoring in psychology, which is very good preparation for the work that I do now. Uh, there was a, it was a strong psychology department, still is, a lot of emphasis on social psychology and what, what I think has sort of evolved into you know, behavioral economics uh, as well in terms of understanding the way in which people act. So graduated from college and was recruited to to be a management trainee, which was a term that was used back then uh, with Chubb Insurance. And so I worked there for a year um, and just was immediately thrown into managing staff, um, most of whom had a very different background from my own. Uh, But I was uh, it was it was a good challenge and then ended up getting married and moving to the West Coast to uh, live in a very small community, Walla Walla, Washington, for anyone who's ever heard of that. I love Walla Walla, Washington, home of Whitman College. It has now become quite the wine capital. But back in the day, it was, there were about fewer than 30,000 people, and there were not very many opportunities for work. But the, the good thing was that uh, there was, they had just done a, um, a, they just had a consultant come in and say, "What do you need to do in order to raise raise more money?" And one of the things was to to get the faculty more involved in potential corporate and foundation work.
0: Where specifically were you at Whitman or somewhere? Whitman out? College. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, you... so Whitman
1: College had had as as I was about to move there, uh, had just had to study and then realized that they had a, you know a person who was incoming who might be a good fit given my background, no fundraising background, but um, background in understanding universities. So I jumped right into that. Uh, and it was immediately something that that where I just found a lot of fun and potential and uh, a lot of ways in which I could really make a difference.
0: Tell me about some of those early experiences, projects, themes, initiatives that just clicked for you
1: well it was really to i think the thing that clicked in a lot of ways was just meeting with the faculty you know there's not it was it was long before the days when you thought okay now i need a computer list of people who might be interested etc you know as we looked at at the foundation or the corporate support we were going to books if you can believe that uh, directories but more, it it immediately taught me because it was I was starting from ground zero in that at, at Whitman was that you need to go out and talk to people, um, not necessarily even at the foundations at first, but you need to see what are the resources within in this case w- within Whitman College that would be of interest to the outside world. And so, boy, faculty do a lot of interesting things. And so you could you I I, I developed a, a sense of how it is that we might frame those and write those in order to um, in order to get support? I used to have a rule back then, which um, at least I think I did. It might be might be that I I'm uh, didn't have, and I certainly wasn't perfect at it. But essentially, trying to trying to say at the end of every day, who have I asked for money, and really where have I gone forward in? in advancing this because my job is not to sit at my desk. My job is really to figure out how to connect the outside world to, to the, um, to the institution. So, uh, and I worked with smart people, had a great boss who was what really, I think one of the pioneers in terms of Larry Bollorier and unfortunately died a few years ago, but um, he was very good in terms of figuring out plan giving. So we did, I eventually moved out of corporate foundation and was the, the head of, development. He was the vice president, but I was director of development. And we did a lot with planned giving it back in the, the, a time when virtually no one other than Pomona college was, was doing that. We advertised in the wall street journal and we got all sorts of people who understood the value of a private, uh, private liberal arts education to think about giving gift annuities and trust to Whitman college, even though they were not alums.
0: So wait, wait, wait a second. So you put an ad in the wall street journal, about- the gift
1: annuity rates, exactly right. Now, if you did that, it'd be buried. But now there are just—I don't—I sh- you'll know, and and w- much more so than I how many organizations are in that business. But it was not common then. And we we did a a sixty million dollar campaign, uh, which at the time was certainly big for a, a small liberal arts college. And we got the endowment up to a hundred. We were very intentional in terms of. What's our endowment level per student? Um, and so got that to be certainly one of the highest in the nation, over $100,000 per student. So again, I was, I was it, it, it is very helpful to have wonderful mentors uh, around you as you start in this business. And I was lucky enough to have that. And a, a wonderful college president who actually loved to be around donors and loved to really. Find out about their lives and, and treat them like they're the, the wonderful human beings they are.
0: And so when you think about that time period, and actually you talked about both plan giving and corporate and foundation relations, which are sort of subsectors of the industry. Some people really specialize in others, maybe don't really understand. Um, and you also talked about just the gut check at the end of the day. Did I have a good day today? You know, a good day being. Who did I, who did I ask for money? Uh you know, no uh sugarcoating it, just just being really direct there. And and so when you think about what made a good day then, or maybe what a good day in the life of a fundraiser should be or is today, what what are the best days?
1: Well, the best days, and I think it's particularly apropos now, easier maybe back then, but is Are you working well with your colleagues you know it's been and just as post-pandemic of course i i can't help but think of today's context uh, post-pandemic everybody coming back together and there's i think there's just more tension in the air a good day is when you're working efficiently and seamlessly with your colleagues and again sometimes those are your colleagues within your division certainly colleagues across your organization and your external partners Uh, but there is no question that this is our lives that we're spending every day, um, eight hours, 10 hours, maybe more. And so a good day is when you've made some progress for what you're supposed to do, but also you've done it in, in cooperation with other others. Yeah. The other thing I will say about Whitman, just as a point of pride, is that we're crazy to think about now, but we got the alumni participation without any hijinks, uh, up to 55% one year. We just... Wow. That was, how? Why? Um, how, just, uh, you know, a lot of elbow grease, class agents, training of volunteers, uh, making it easy for them, um, making it very clear that there was, um, that the money was going to be spent well. Yeah. No rocket science there.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think everybody wants the easy button or the <laughs> know, magic right. app that just does it for you. But I think, in 2023, the elbow grease, the focus, the commitment, it still, it still goes a long way uh, in spite of the progress, you know, in mm-hmm. spite of how easier it is to get in touch with people today. It's easier for every other brand to get in touch with people today. And so the elbow grease is still required to stand out. Exactly. So you go from sort of new to the industry I think, you know, stumbling into the opportunity is probably not an overstatement at Whitman, feeling like it was a real early connection for you, raising a $60 million campaign, also achieving excellent participation and setting a standard for endowment per student. That's a lot. And at that point, are you feeling like this is my career path now?
1: Yes. So my next step, was to move to be the executive director of the University of Oregon Foundation. And it was interesting because University of Oregon was raising less money per year than Whitman was at that point. Now clearly surpassed as as University of Oregon's had some great success, arguably um, when I was there, but then also certainly has, has been on a wonderful trajectory in the meantime. Uh, so yes, I, I thought this was this would be a great opportunity in terms of being able to work in a very different structure, and indeed it was. Uh, a small liberal arts college is much more cohesive in nature than a, a, a public research university. And there, you know, there's the the state component, the, uh, being part of a state system, um, being part of uh, all all these different deans and colleges that are all fighting for resources. So that was a good a good opportunity to learn something very different uh, in terms of just hopefully honing my administrative skills and learning a lot more about politics.
0: Have you been back there recently? I have not.
1: I have not. They
0: truly, when people say, hey, you've been to a lot of college campuses, you've done this work for a while. What are some of the most amazing campuses you've been to? I'm sure, you know, part of why I feel Oregon is there is, is linked back to work you were doing with your teammates, uh, uh, you know, decades before, but it, um, it is just stunning. Not only the athletics facilities, which are well covered, but the foundation itself, the alumni space now is just, it's truly remarkable. And, and I just have to ask, uh, you can't walk around that campus without seeing night here and night there and night there. Uh, and one of my all time kind of favorite entrepreneurial books is, is shoe dog. Uh, mm-hmm. which is sort yeah. of the behind the scenes story. And now it's been made into a movie that many people have seen, but that story took place from like 1962 to 1980. That was sort of the time period of the plot of the book and the, in the movie. Um, and you sort of settled into that role shortly thereafter. And, and, and we're, a, I think there during a lot of the, philanthropy that then either occurred or or seeds were planted. And I'm just curious how you sort of navigate such a once in a generation's story and brand that becomes synonymous with the university and philanthropy at the same time. Like, what can you share about any lessons learned uh, in that regard?
1: Well, the first lesson that I should share is that it, it took a lot of people to and a lot of consistency long after I left in order to to really keep that going. I think we see in organizations sometimes where where people don't continue that the, the intensity and the stewardship and the involvement. Um, and that has not been the case at University of Oregon. So I, I did work on the, the first gift that named the library and the, the interesting thing about that gift in many ways was that it was happening right during the um, the downturn in Black Monday in 1987 and so that was literally the week when the gift agreement was being formulated and it's hard to believe now, but there, but there was a sense in which uh, the donor thought I might not have the resources and so I need to make sure that this is structured. <laughs> that way you know and then go on to, to see all the, the progress that's been made but what an ideal donor you know that is you see somebody who really understands the importance of the university who's, who's uh was was raised in a way that he understood um the the value of education and was a true oregonian and realized that the flagship university was very important so just an amazing, um, an amazing guy, cares a lot, intense, but also at the time, in addition to the, the Knight family was the Bowerman family, who were very generous. Uh, Bill Bowerman being the legendary University of Oregon coach who uh, essentially said, well, he, he developed the, what became the, the Nike shoe um, using his wife's waffle iron, et cetera, everybody knows that story, I think. And if you uh, don't,
0: go read the story, because what you're (laughs) highlighting is is really just the virtuous cycle, the intersection of entrepreneurship, education, you know, with with no University of Oregon, there is no Nike, and without Nike, University of Oregon is not what it is right now. And it's just this amazing sort of intersection of, of value being created an entrepreneurship and then that coming back full circle to create opportunity for, you know, generations uh, to come. It's, it's just so, it's so good.
1: It is. It's, you know, you just have people there who are very special as we, as Bill Bowerman wanted better facilities for the track program, you know, he stepped in and made it happen. And boy, that that's a, that was a strong personality in terms of if the university can't do this, let's figure out a way legally that we can, we can take this land and and um, take it off the university's books. And so we can build what we need to build and then give it back to the university, you know, just, so as you say, creative entrepreneurs who didn't let much stop them and they're not letting much stop them when they want to do things uh, to help the university either. I so love that was it. lucky break. I love it. Uh,
0: thank you for sharing. That's a fun behind the scenes look. And, uh, at the same time, after a good run in the Pacific Northwest, State College called, or you called them, or a recruiter called you, and all of a sudden, you're you're in the middle of Pennsylvania. So, tell me what led to that move.
1: It was a family move, entirely. Uh, and so, we moved to State College, Pennsylvania, and a little bit like Walla Walla, Washington, there's one industry in town, and so, and, and obviously, with my background and at the University of Oregon. Um, I still worked for Oregon for one year. The person who had been dean of the law school who I'd worked with very closely became president. So I was just, um, I was keeping my Oregon ties for the first year doing being a special advisor to the, the, the person who ended up being a longtime president of the University of Oregon, then joined Penn State, which was by contrast to Oregon, very well oiled bureaucracy. Uh, just you can imagine the personalities of the different states. This fits, fits it perfectly.
0: Well, oiled bureaucracy might be a new expression. I'm not sure <laughs> I've ever heard that statement before.
1: It was. And again, you know, that's how lucky to be a part of that. It was you know, it's it was an orderly place. And I, I think there was a a real appreciation for getting things done. You know, it's a very much of a can do university just within its student, student body and its alums and, and thus the administration as well. Um, and so that was in, in just, a, just a, a powerhouse in terms of uh, alumni loyalty and commitment and, and, uh, and admiration for football. And so there were a lot of things that, that made it just very different but just a wonderful, absolutely wonderful experience. So my, my continued theme is I can't get out of this business because I love it so much. You know, I, I love the ways in which we can help a university uh, in order to really prosper for its students and, and for the
0: larger community. Well, tell me about uh, maybe Penn State specific, but also you've worked and are currently working with other sort of big brands, big sort of power five type athletic institutions um, that are also amazing academic powerhouses. And uh, at the same time, when you talk about that affinity, the loyalty, the, you know, now it's the the whiteouts and state college football games, people can imagine uh, how do you harness that affinity, which may be, you know, athletic in nature for at least a big, part of the population and convert that into philanthropy for all of the impact areas that have little or nothing to do with football.
1: Well I think the I think I might change your premise a little bit particularly at, at, at Penn State where I think people thought it had everything to do with it. Okay. Uh, that is that athletics and the academic side both coexist. What we often found when I was there and, and um, doing both the, the academic as well as the athletic fundraising was that the, <clears throat> the, the donors wanted to give to athletics, but they didn't see that as the, the be all, to end all. Penn State was joining Big Ten, which everybody thinks of as an athletic conference, right? Um, and, and particularly back then. It in fact elevated the way in which the university uh, thought of itself and was in its aspirations and and its alums and so there was there wasn't really a pull between i'm just going to support athletics there was really an assumption I want this university to be stronger I want it to be a stronger member of the big Ten I want everybody to say we we belong here and so the the uh, there were just lots of Lots of prospects to work with. We had, you know, it's a huge alumni base. We had, um, I think at the time, 125,000 uh, life members and uh, for which I take no credit because I didn't work on the life membership program, but that was a, that's a strong uh, help. Now I think that they're maybe at 180,000. So you have a lot of people who are just thinking about the university generally. They want to be on campus for game day, but they also want it to be the best of the best. I think at University of Houston, we are we' we're, we're getting there. We've had a more uneven history in terms of conference alignment. but now is our big opportunity with joining the Big twelve to make sure our alums understand it's not just about athletics that we need to we need to compete there and win there, but we need to win on the academic front. We're very focused at University of Houston in terms of both great um, improving our graduation rate and improving our research expenditures, um, both of which play into and are complementary, frankly, to a strong athletic uh, conference and team.
0: I have to ask about your, well, also you're the second podcast guest I'm aware of that moved from the University of Oregon to Penn State University. Have you ever crossed paths with Paul Clifford?
1: I don't think so. Yeah, no. so
0: Paul was at Oregon, and then uh, now leads as CEO of the Alumni Association at Penn State, which is kind of a oh, funny... Huh. Uh, I
1: mean, I'm going to talk to him, yes. Happy to
0: make an introduction at some point. Terrific, uh, terrific leader uh, in the alumni world, uh, for sure. And, uh, you know, definitely knows your colleague, uh, Mike Paday, for example. But just a funny uh, coincidence that you both went in that direction. But then you had the opportunity to, to return to the alma mater, to Vanderbilt. And that is you know, fairly common among the sector. A lot of people actually start out working at the alma mater and then go on from there. You're a little more unique in that you really built a, a career and a lot of experiences away from Vanderbilt. What was it like coming back in, not as a student, but as an administrator? Uh, did it feel like coming home? Did it feel like a completely different place? Uh, what are your reflections from your time there?
1: I've always thought it's dangerous to work for your alma mater, because you do see you don't the rose colored glasses are gone. Right. you see all the sausage making every day, um, and so maybe there was a little bit of that in, in, in coming back to to Vanderbilt. My daughter was a student at the time, and so at, at Vanderbilt, and so it, it it was fun to to be thinking about her experience as a student. While while I'm working there, but, but Vanderbilt had entered a new uh, era of being much more uh, ambitious in terms of its national reputation and getting a lot of students recruited from other parts of the country, particularly the Northeast. So that aspect of it felt pretty different. Super lucky once again to be working with Gordon um, Gee, who has uh, been you know been a, a legendary university president, and to see the ways in which he thought very strategically, you know, he's, he's very much a person who thinks about big moves as opposed to process. Uh, and it, 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 so again, great to be around that and great to be a, around a, an institution that wanted to strengthen its, its giving. Vanderbilt has not traditionally relied on its philanthropy from alumni in the same way that some other institutions have. You know, its, it's endowment is large enough and there've been a few very large donors that that part of my job there was to figure out how do we build a a, a more consistent major gift program? So there's plenty to do to be distracted without worrying about whether or not I was, uh, it felt like it, it did when I was a student.
0: I played football at Brown University. I got recruited to Brown and it was the fall of 1999. And one of the primary pitches at the time was how lucky we were to have Gordon Gee as our president. And then (laughs) Vanderbilt stole him away before I got there. Uh, And we went on to have uh, Ruth Simmons, who was an absolutely spectacular, amazing president. But it's just funny that 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 sort of coincided. And and yeah, he's he's definitely, uh, you know, has to be one of the most well-known college president. So when you think about working with somebody like that, you know, national brand and, and leadership, but also your boss, uh, or, you know, your boss's boss, depending on the exact setup, uh, any lessons learned in, in collaborating with sort of a, a visionary like that?
1: Just soak it in every day. And, um, and also Gordon is legendary and he, but he's also human. You know there are things that that maybe we're not in his wheelhouse, and so it's also making sure that, that that those of us who work with them are the the people who can who can make sure that all those other areas are are filled. Um, and so he's you know he doesn't really like to he may not, he may not want to ask for money, right? Uh, like a lot of presidents, frankly, but but he's very much. A part of the ask, and so figuring out what, what you know, what's my role, what's his role, um, in in a lot of those conversations.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, you were at Vanderbilt during the financial crisis. What was that like? Lessons learned? Did it impact the work? I imagine that it did. Uh, you you referenced Black Monday. Previously, and it's certainly been a complicated couple of years uh, over the last few years, but just when you think about those economic cycles, but also marching ahead, uh, you know, how do you how do you balance that?
1: Well, it's clearly a lesson that you learn to be to be focused on stewardship and to go back and spend time with the donors and the alums who have given before and not pressure them. You know, listen to them and, and work with them and figure out where they are. If, you know, if, you're, if, if you're at a place that, which Vanderbilt was not, where you're really, really trying to make the huge numbers, you're talking to donors about bequest provisions, because if the intent is there, that's a way in which they can make a commitment and we can honor that over the years without making a commitment during a financial crisis. It's.
0: Humor, again, we, you said bequest for vision. I don't think I've heard that.
1: Request provision. Sorry. Sorry. Well, so that is that is. I will. I, I want to do this chair, but I'll do it in my will, and and not establish it right now.
0: So fine line, because that could kick a lot of philanthropy down the road, uh, but that's sort of the art where you've got to use the judgment on pushing for nearer term dollars versus securing something structured down the road.
1: Well said, very well said. Exactly. To say, probably so, hard
0: to do. So I don't think I, I don't know if I could do that, but I'm, I'm glad I could say it. Uh,
1: I'm sure you could do it. But the, so if, if, but if you know, if someone says I want to do that, it the responsibility, I mean, this is a long game, you know, the responsibility is for me and for my successor to really engage that person. And, so often, what they'll think about is: is there a way in which I could, I could, you know, the financial crisis is over; it's five years later. Maybe I'll begin to fund the income off of that, as if it were a real thing. Now, it's harder with a professorship than with a scholarship, but you can you can get people into the habit of giving, and still, um, you know, preserve the bequest provision or get them to to activate it earlier in some cases.
0: Tell me more about planned giving. And this has just come up in an organization that I'm involved with. And I'll I'll try to keep it somewhat high level out of privacy, but organization I'm involved with, uh, a supporter, a leader of the organization, who's been very philanthropic on an annual basis was the person that you could call up and, or he'd call you up and say, hey, what's the gap we're trying to close this year? You know, like the gap that like, I, I'll fill the gap, right? um and you know recently tragically passed away all right and so now uh there's there's mourning and there's just a lot that people have been thinking about incredible legacy impact will be felt for generations uh but also as it relates to the specific organization i'm involved with nobody ever really sat down and said could we talk about long term could we talk about estate planning and in our case it's more of a volunteer led nonprofit and having like a professional planned giving conversation just feels way above everybody's pay grade right and and now he's he's gone and i am sure other organizations that he's been involved with uh, I'm sure there's been a ton of estate planning given this situation, yes. but we just never had that conversation. And, and I know, I guarantee that if you're sitting right here, listening to this call, he'd be like, of course, this organization needs to be a part of my legacy. No, we've never talked about it. And, and we were just talking about this the other day, cause like now I'm imagining that it's like lawyers, estate stuff, family things we don't even know about just happening. It's like how are we how are we going to insert ourselves in that conversation, you know, in, in a way that is even close to respectful. So realistically, we're just not going to. But also right. realistically, knowing this person, it's it's just a missed it's a missed intention, if you will. Uh, that must happen all the time. It does. So how do you coach your team on? hitting the fiscal year goal and cash and restricted, unrestricted and all of that, but also um, because like plan giving is sometimes positioned as like a silo within an overall advancement apparatus, but it really kind of needs to be a part of every single relationship, ideally as soon as possible. So if you or me, or if others are listening, thinking, yeah, I should probably have that because like, it literally it's like it was a reminder. Life short. We could all be gone tomorrow. And if we are, what happens? There's not really a question there, Eloise. I don't know. I no, just, it's, yeah.
1: it, I, mean, I think, you know, you said, how do you teach your staff? Some of this is really just living through it. It is so hard because you're both mourning that person you worked with and cared about as well as, wanting you know wa- wanting the um the philanthropy that that person intended to do but so you know i've lived through enough of those to know <clears throat> and in some cases i don't think i could have done anything differently it's just someone I literally there was a gift i was working on at um one university there was a five million dollar gift and the person got hit by a car crossing the street and so was a fair, fairly new to the university in terms of philanthropy. So we, we invite, we worked with the wife and, and there were fairly young children. I don't think that we ever got a gift from that um, because I think the wife just wasn't thinking big like that, even though she, she appreciated the the university itself. So uh, the, the way in which we do the, the planning at university of Houston and I've done elsewhere is to come up with a, a, a business plan every year, a goal setting plan that has uh, every person that we're gonna ask for a major gift, every person we're gonna ask for a planned gift, what our annual giving number, corporate and foundation. And that's the blueprint for the year. It starts with the, with the development officer, maybe the chief development officer for the unit or for the area who develops the blueprint and then brings it to a broader community the, um, in our case, the senior associate vice president for development, and and, and everybody agrees this is the plan. So the plan giving person, in, because we have a plan giving office, obviously at a big university, and then there are, there's the the development officer who may be working with the prospect. Everybody agrees we're going to ask Brent for a gift that year, and so there's there's a there's a kind of intentionality that is on a yearly basis which which has helped you know this and the some years that obviously it's not a hundred percent but we expect that there would be 70 percent at least of the people who are on that list who are approached not all of them are going to give it the same level maybe some more some less but that does allow us to keep the the, the train running while we're building the track
0: thank you for sharing a lot to learn in that regard and, and i do think it's just a uh yeah, I mean, every there's just so much. It's it's almost impossible to even know what the plan giving potential is. Um, it just seems like there's so much out there that that just kind of goes away if it isn't if it isn't discussed, you know, in advance or explicitly put in there. you know, there's sort of that uh unrealized sort of potential or emotion that uh that it, it just requires planning and documentation and nobody wants to talk about that
1: uh oh it's horrible it means we're all more it means we're mortal you know and i think another thing that's come into play in recent years are the donor advised funds right and so because that is a place where you know i talked about bequest intentions that or provisions that is uh accomplished in large measure with the donor advised fund right that is I I know I want to give some money. This is not the right time. It's not not good during a financial downturn, obviously. But in in terms of um, people being able to plan without making a decision exactly how it's going to be or where it's going to go. So that's complicated the landscape, arguably in a good way. um, But it's another nuance.
0: So does that effectively, I mean, that effectively guarantees a planned gift. No, not necessarily, because it, well, so, I have. I should know this, okay? I have a donor advised fund, and I have no idea what would happen if I passed away tomorrow. So I should probably go check on that. But
1: you, you should oh, check oh, the company because yeah. you you probably have provisions as as to who can decide on where that money goes uh, in in
0: your. Um, but, but point being that advice. the money has to go to charity. That's why I That's said it. so it's effectively yeah. a preloaded planned gift. TBD on exactly what the split is, which would come down to estate planning and so forth.
1: Right. It's effectively a small foundation that you have and without all the machinery of of having a foundation, but you've taken the deduction for that gift and it is, it is, it cannot be used for anything but charitable purposes. Exactly.
0: Yeah. No. And I think it's a great, I mean, it's been a, there's been a lot of innovation in that category. And I think the same way that people, you know, have gone from checks and going to the teller to having multiple banking solutions on their phone. Like I've got my my DAF on my phone and, and that's maybe not super, super common yet, but I think that's changing really quickly as just one pillar of our, you know, financial lives, for example. So hopefully uh, more of that in the future. Although I know that can complicate things because then, um that annual commitment that can, can be kicked down the road, perhaps for, uh, I don't know, bigger ideas. So not everybody loves to ask, probably in your world either.
1: I, I think that it's just, um, I don't think there is, there's, uh, maybe not loving it, but just, we, we just need to realize that's a, that is a, an option just, and I think the perfect analogy you just threw with the, the technological solutions that people have for for payment. Uh, We we have a challenge because we're a state institution and there's certain forms of modern payments that we can't take. And so, you know, to keep up with the technology, and keep up with the, the laws for donor advised funds, that's what we need to be doing every day.
0: Tell me about the experience at Houston, favorite memories it's been a, uh, you know, now over 10 years uh, leading the team. That's rare in this sector. Uh, what are some of the highlights, absolute bright spots of of that period?
1: Well, as I look back, just to see the progress that the university has made and to, to believe that I've been at least a small part of that in terms of getting Phi Beta Kappa and joining the Big 12 and... You know, our current goal to be in the, in the top 50. So that's a, that's a highlight that, that is every day because we know that we're not, that we're not settling for mediocre or, or even um, good. And so, and I think also the highlight is to, I'm out in the community a lot and to know that there's a kind of respect for the University of Houston that really wasn't there necessarily 15, 20 years ago. Um, and it's then people now understand we're a big part of the solution to make Houston a great city as it becomes perhaps the third largest city in the country. The The other thing is just as with, um, my story would be typical there, have, I've worked with a few donors here, um, particularly some anonymous donors who are among the most thoughtful philanthropists that you could imagine. Um, and if for the right reasons wanna be anonymous, um makes it harder for us sometimes, because we like to be able to brag about the people who are who have joined the our our journey. But there it it's been really very rewarding to work with some of the smartest and uh, wealthiest people around.
0: you ever just flat out say, Hey, I know you want this to be anonymous. But if we can publicize it, publicize this alongside you. It will spark momentum. It becomes marketable to these three other gifts that we're hoping line up like how I don't know how hard do you push or do you just sort of try to take the preference and and respect it?
1: I increasingly I mean I always say that, no question because it's the truth. you know they um, it, it is the truth that if we can if we can use their names, that's gonna that's gonna help us. Um, but I don't push very hard. It's basically, I
0: think we need your name image and likeness,
1: right, right. We need Nil for donors right exactly. Uh, but you know that there these these people are particularly I find, and I don't know if it's so I've been here 11 years. I don't know if it's a current trend or if I'm just seeing it more in in Houston or the or our alums. But they're pretty decided about the fact that it, it will be anonymous, and so we live with that. And uh, you know, it's it is uh, we we make it work. We love the our anonymous donors.
0: Yep. Well, I hope they're listening. Uh, <laughs> so I just have to ask. I have an aspiration which is to write a book, but I can't call it a goal yet because I have no, none of the prerequisites for it to actually be a goal. But you're an author and you published Don't Make Me Fundraise. And my understanding is you published that about five minutes before the pandemic. So just tell me the seed that was planted to take on a side hustle in addition to the big job that you've got and, and, and all the teammates and the campaign work. Uh, I love meeting people that have, that have written, that are writers. It's also just really overwhelming for me to think about. So what can we learn? What is don't make me fundraise? What's the origin story? And how do you feel about having published a book?
1: Well, you're, you're kind. Um, so the, well, working in an academic community, everybody writes a book, right? So you, you just got to uh, be thinking about that on occasion, which I which I have over the years. The, the, the basis of the title is that every volunteer board that I've led, uh, you know, administered, I should say, or if I've been the volunteer, every person almost to a one will say, I'll do anything, but don't make me fundraise. So that's the basis of the of the book. And it's funny because when I tell people that, they almost always laugh because it, it rings true with their experience as well. And so what I wanted to do with this, I, I thought, well, I'll write a book if I have a, something that I think is a fairly unique message, which is there are ways in which you can get over that. You're never gonna be the, the professional fundraiser and you don't, you, as a volunteer, whether you know how to or not, you don't necessarily wanna be doing it, it uh, you know, every day, all day long. So it really is just my um, attempt to demystify the process and what it is you should know. So you go in comfortably um, as a volunteer with your own personality and your own strengths, and you figure out how it is that um, that you can help the organization and raise some money. So I do, th- there's simple things like gift tables and, and how that really works, which is just the, the structural organization. Cause it seems, I think to a lot of volunteers as if it's just, You know, give me the old days. It was give me four, three by five cards. And then it's just, well, let's talk to the richest people in town. And, you know, it seems super un, un, um, not even unscientific, but it just seems a a, a bit random where, when in fact a good fundraising organization is, is very, um, practiced in, in the various steps that it takes. So just hoping that people will read that it's, it's a light read, um, but gives them, I, I hope some, Um, some comfort as, as volunteers.
0: When you think about the highest impact, most effective volunteers you've ever worked with Whitman college, Houston, somewhere in between, what are the characteristics of the best volunteers?
1: Well, certainly the easiest answer to that is to say the best characteristic of a volunteer chair is to lead a good meeting. And which is surprisingly rare in, in, my world, at least, people always want. Maybe, maybe it's the biggest donor. Maybe it's the wealthiest person. Somebody who can run a good meeting. Um, the characteristics of a good volunteer: somebody who asks a lot of questions. Again, in my book, I, I try and outline the kinds of questions that a volunteer should ask, because it is uh, you have to know the organization. A lot of it is just fear that you've you, you just you're drove from your your office or your home and you go to the meeting and then and then you leave and you don't think about it again it's people who are want to be able to say when they are whether in their cocktail party or whether they're doing some very focused asks or joint asks but they understand the organization well enough to say this is why i volunteer and this is why it's it's the most important place for you to give your dollars so yeah. people give a little bit of time. I'm, I'm well aware it's never top of the list. Family, you know, is, is always number one and work and I could go on, but you have to know something about your organization. You
0: know, as a volunteer to a couple of organizations, one in a big way, there are times I just I feel so bad for the advancement staff that has to listen to us, go on tangents, and set <laughs> off track. And I know I cringe because I I've spent enough time around the work where I'm just, I don't know, maybe a little more empathetic where it just pains me to see people. And, and, and I feel for the staff and there are times I'm like, what this staff wants to do right now is just fire us. And they can't because they're being good stewards and they're, but, but sometimes like don't volunteers just need to be fired or given tough feedback or like like you just want to be like we need to stay on track this is our goal that is not what we should be talking about you didn't show up to the last three calls you're off the committee like there's just this kind of walking on eggshells around volunteers that that i think can be really counterproductive sometime but i can empathize empathize with the staff that kind of feels like they just have to deal with it sometimes
1: exactly there are some volunteers that probably need to be fired no question they're just they're they're but for the most part i guess i'd throw the responsibility back to us those those who were managed, managing the volunteer board we generally know what they're going to say and the, the 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 ideas in in some cases the the, the first layer of ideas that they're going to give us the second layer of ideas are actually very useful because they have that outside perspective that we don't have they're always going to say we need to involve younger donors and they're always going to say if we could just get $1000 from 100,000 people we could do this neither of which is helpful so we know those things right. and so let's go let's every, every new
0: every new it, class of volunteers brings those new fresh insights or i remember sitting in a room one time where It was like, all right, let's, hey, let's talk about engagement scoring. What if we scored our people on engagement? And then it was like, let's put sticky notes on the wall of how, how could we engage? Like, let's come, I'm like, this is, there is a system, there are spreadsheets, there are templates. Like, this problem has been solved. We cannot spend all afternoon sticky boarding and dreaming. So I guess you got to take the good with the bad. Activating volunteers can be a game changer, uh, but that comes with challenges too.
1: It it comes with challenges, but let's be mindful of what they are. Right. You think I should write a book on the staff dealing with volunteers?
0: Well, I know. uh,
1: You can write that book.
0: I are maybe I I'll be I'll write it. How to deal with me? (laughs) Advice for staff in dealing with unruly, undisciplined volunteers or something like that. But no, our friend in the sector, John Feudo, who is a fellow author, uh, did write a book uh, called uh, Herding Cats, which was about his experience in managing volunteers in, in the fundraising capacity. So uh, yeah, I, I, lo- I love it. Um, well, Eloise, this time has flown by. I want to make sure you have an opportunity just to highlight if there are uh openings at houston if you expect to continue to hire and and build the team if you're in more of a steady state mode uh and then certainly if folks are listening they should go check out the book but also uh what's the best way to stay in touch with you
1: well the best way to stay in touch with me is probably through linkedin i'm not the perfect linkedin uh contributor but but that is an easy way or email me i'm obviously available on the website we are very much hiring um at at all times we're not building the staff to greater numbers but there's enough um there's enough activity and we have some retirements uh and and so we're we're doing now now we're not in the midst of a university-wide campaign but we have uh five micro campaigns all of which except for one have, have big numbers and so we're intentionally moving ahead very strategically where we want the philanthropy to land if possible and moving toward the our centennial in 2027 so it's going to be an exciting ride between now and 2027 to see what can we have done by um by the time of our centennial and the, the fireworks then so i would say love to hear from people love love suggestions um and even um just reaching out personally so that I know more about what you all are doing because I'm sure I can learn from that.
0: Absolutely. Well, please uh, feel free. Listen, uh, listeners, reach out to Eloise, connect on LinkedIn, uh, say that you heard her on the RAISE podcast. And thank you for sharing your journey and uh, really enjoyed the discussion. Look forward to continuing to get to know you and best wishes as you uh, move into the Big 12 and everything that goes along with it.
1: Good. Well, thank you, Brent. This was an honor to be asked to do this and wonderful to get to know you a little bit better as well. So thank you.
0: Very fun. Thank you, Eloise. And with that, uh, Brent signing off uh, with today's episode of The Raise Podcast, featuring Eloise Dunn-Brice, who serves as Vice Chancellor for Advancement and Alumni at the University of Houston. Take care, everybody. Thanks. Thank you.